What's happening? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is episode six of the revamped Matt Bernier Show for Monday, March the 16th, 2020. However you're listening to this thing, thank you for doing so. There's a number of ways and options for you as far as your listening and viewing consumption are concerned. If you are someone that likes to watch you can head on over to YouTube and just search the Matt Bernier Show, or you can go to the In The Money Media page as far as the YouTube channel is concerned. Please subscribe to that. Make sure the bell icon is lit up so you get everything that In The Money Media has to offer. Whenever one of these episodes is uploaded, you'll get a notification. You click on it. Boom. There you go. If you are someone that likes to just listen to things, number of ways for you to do that as well, whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's over on InTheMoneyPodcast.com along with all the other In The Money properties, uh, whether it is the In The Money Players podcast, whether it's the Redboard Rewind, whether it's the In The Ring podcast, you name it. number of different things over there for you to find. And again, InTheMoneyPodcast.com. Plenty of ways, though, for you to find all of these things. And however you listen, please rate, review, and subscribe. This obviously a bit of an odd time, uh, not just from a racing standpoint, but just worldwide. I mean, we got, we got bigger things going on other than just horse racing and sports in general with coronavirus uh, doing a number on everyone at this point. Um, so th- that has to be obviously the the sort of opening piece here. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on the virus itself and the disease itself because, look, I'm not a doctor. I, I know about as much as you do and probably in, as far as many of you are concerned, I know less than you do. Um, I just, there's only so much that I trust coming from certain things on, on the internet. So I'm just kind of whatever the government and the CDC and folks are saying, that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to abide by. But again, I'm not someone that whose opinion really should matter about this sort of thing, about the actual illness itself. That's something that you should be worried about and, and sort of reading up on from educated people, um, it does affect horse racing, though, and at the end of the day, that's what all of you folks are here watching and listening for, horse racing information, horse racing topics and conversation. So we'll talk about that. How does this potentially affect horse racing going forward? Now, I'm recording this open here at 1138 on Monday morning, Monday the 16th. Nothing has been announced yet. The things that have been announced, a number of jurisdictions um, are being shut down as far as uh, gatherings of 50 people or more. Uh, New York has done it. Uh, Here in Massachusetts, where I live, that has gone into uh, effect. Um, But now you're starting to see casinos and racetracks close up. Uh, I know overnight Oaklawn Park announced that they are going to run through March the 30th without any spectators. Uh, Maryland has closed up shop. Uh, New York, I would imagine, is going to follow suit now that this sort of new thing is pushed through, where gatherings of 50 or more people, uh, no dice. Um, I, I just, I think this is probably a precursor of things to come. And look, if this is what it takes to kind of nip this thing in the bud right now, let's do it. Let's just sit it out for a few weeks and try to try to right the ship. Oakland, we'll see what happens there. That's that's tentatively what their plan is um, if things change dramatically over the next few days or heck even this afternoon. And that's why I'm saying this is being recorded uh, right around 20 to 12 
on Monday morning, the 16th of March, because there is some of this opening piece here that could be obsolete. And I think there's a real chance that one of these topics at least is um, by the time you listen to this or watch this, whether it's Monday night or Tuesday or whenever you typically listen to this. Um, as far as the big race, the Kentucky Derby, the run for the roses, um, when Bob Baffert after Charlatan, who, and let me just quick give you a little rundown. We'll talk about the Derby and, and just racing ramifications as far as coronavirus is concerned. But then we will pivot to the actual racing itself that we've already seen. Uh, go over the stakes races from this past weekend, including the Rebel, um, the Beholder Mile, the Azari, the Hurricane Birdie, and the Jeff Ruby Stakes. Uh, I'll also have to touch on Charlatan, no question about it. And then we'll wrap things up with Pick History, updated there and the Q&A segment as well. So anyway, back to where we were. Uh, when Bob Baffert is quoted in a Louisville Courier-Journal story after Charlatan's smashing victory in his first try going two turns Saturday evening, when he's quoted saying he's hearing June or September for the Kentucky Derby. When I read that, I think, well, he's not just hearing it. He's probably being told that by the powers that be. Because I maintain it was it was similar to what I, I brought up earlier uh, last week on Twitter when uh, the NCAA tournaments were canceled, the men's and women's tournaments were canceled. But prior to them officially pulling the plug, Duke and Kansas had announced that as sort of entities, schools, they were not going to allow their athletic teams to travel. And I said the. The NCAA tournament's not happening. The men's tournament is 100% not happening. And the women's tournament is probably not going to happen either. I said, if Duke's not playing, they're not going to have the tournament. And I had someone come back to me and they go, well, Duke is in every year. It feels like it's a rite of passage. You know, let somebody else. That's not the point. The point is the one of, if not the marquee brand as far as college basketball is concerned. And I don't mean to get into a, a sort of a, a you know what match back and forth between who is the marquee brand. I know there's Duke. I know there's Carolina. I know there's Kentucky and Kansas and Michigan State. And you name it. There's a million different ones. And I'm sure I'm omitting people. And that's not the point of this. But the idea is if you're going to be missing at least one and then Kansas comes out and follows suit, you're missing two of your marquee brands. That tournament's not going to be played without your marquee brands. The Kentucky Derby is not going to be run without their marquee brands. And their marquee brands, whether we want to admit it or not, it's not necessarily the horses because the horses are only here for this long. The marquee brands are the names and faces that everyone is accustomed to and knows and can recognize. Most notably, the guy with the white hair, Bob Baffert. Another guy with, I suppose you can call it white hair, Todd Pletcher. I don't mean that in a negative way. Chad Brown, Richard Mandela, any of these names... The Derby will not be run without them because it loses. I know the, the event itself is still bigger than the individuals participating, but it still matters. So when Baffert's saying he's hearing June or September, that's an informed opinion. He's probably been talking back and forth with the folks at Churchill Downs, and that seems more likely than not. I'm saying this again. I can't stress this enough. Now it's about quarter of 12. I have a reliable source that tells me that the race is going to be run in September. It's not official yet, um, but you're seeing other folks out on social media start to sort of float that out as well. 
Uh, you're seeing that the first, the Labor Day weekend hotels in Louisville are basically non-existent anymore. And if they are, they're through the roof price-wise. Usually where there's smoke, there's fire. So do with that what you will. And I'm sure by the time this comes out on Monday, there'll have already been an announcement of when the race, if it is indeed going to be postponed, it seems like it's going to. Uh, but if it is indeed postponed, when it will be. I feel like I there's enough smoke to think that it's going to be early September. I would imagine the first Saturday in September. Um, so a little bit of a wrinkle. Now, what does that mean for the rest of the Triple Crown and the rest of the, let's just use the three-year-olds because the Derby doesn't have a an immediate impact on older horses. Obviously, the three-year-olds are the ones that can partake in the race. So how does that shake up the Triple Crown in general? Well, if we're talking about the Kentucky Derby likely being postponed because of coronavirus, you have to assume the Maryland Jockey Club is going to be looking at it saying, what are the, what's the likelihood that everything will clear up two weeks beyond the Kentucky Derby for us to run the Preakness? I mean, again, this is nothing more than speculation and conjecture, but I, I, I it seems pretty unlikely. I feel like at this point, we're all sort of, I mean, doesn't doesn't the beginning of June feel like a air quotes safe? And I'm I, again, not I'm a doctor. I don't know the trajectory of these things, but if we all do what we're supposed to do, kind of lay low for a few weeks, let this thing kind of you know simmer down a bit, maybe the beginning of June is a safe bet that we start to see sports starting to kind of be folded back into the day to day lives. And if that's the case, well, the Preakness is the second week in May. Is if the Preakness needs to be postponed, there are multiple pieces to that. Effectively, then the the Belmont Stakes could be actually the first leg of the Triple Crown at a mile and a half, which would be a little bit of a, a you know throw your head for a spin. The Preakness being postponed theoretically, Pimlico's meet is this long, so it, let's say it needed to be postponed until June or July. They'll be back at Laurel at that point. Does that mean that the Preakness, after all that, all the the news stories and speculation that we had heard and been speaking about for it seems like years now, about the possibility of the Preakness moving to Laurel, but now the city of Baltimore and Stronic Group they're working together to try to revamp Pimlico in the years to come. Whatever, however that shakes down, wouldn't it kind of be ironic if the race ended up being run at Laurel? not by any of their sort of volition, but because of uh, an outside factor that kind of forced their hand, forced all everyone's hand. Um, I just, so that that's what was my first thought is that if the Derby is going to get postponed and all likelihood the Preakness is going to get postponed, the Preakness gets postponed, Pimlico is probably not going to be running their meet at that point. Then does the Preakness have to shift to Laurel? When is the Preakness going to be run? Do you run it after the Belmont Stakes? So all of a sudden, does the Triple Crown for 2020 look like the mile and a half Belmont, the mile and three sixteenths Preakness, and then later on, the mile and a quarter Kentucky Derby? And in the midst of that, I wonder, how does that affect the other sort of marquee three-year-old races? How does that affect the Haskell at Monmouth Park? How does that affect the Travers at Saratoga? How does that affect the Pennsylvania Derby? at parks. And what does all this mean at that time of year for the older horses? Now, I mean, you're, 
it's been a trend that you're seeing fewer and fewer three-year-olds take on elders before the Breeders' Cup. I mean, this year, if, if the schedule looks anything remotely like what I just laid out, you won't you won't see three-year-olds against older horses as far as the classic distance races are concerned. The Jockey Club Gold Cup, you won't see any three-year-olds in that race this year. You won't see any three-year-olds in the awesome again out at Santa Anita. Um, think of any of these, the Lucas Classic, which I know typically they have run. I believe the Stephen Foster has now been moved into September. You won't see any three-year-olds in that race because if the, if the Derby is going to possibly be in September, the Travers theoretically is a few weeks prior to that. The Pennsylvania Derby is probably going to be run right on the Kentucky Derby or somewhere thereabout within a week or two. I mean, there's, there seems like there would be zero chance that you would see three-year-olds taking on elders before the Breeders' Cup. And keeping in mind that the Breeders' Cup Classic is going to be at Keeneland this year. So, you know, there's a real scenario where for your top three-year-olds, you end up with some sort of a campaign of the Belmont, the Preakness, and... If you, let's say you run in the Belmont, run well enough, you don't win, Triple Crown's not a possibility for you. Maybe you bypass the Preakness. Maybe you wait for a race. Again, this is nothing more than me spitballing here, and I'd be curious what all of your thoughts are on Twitter at Bernie or underscore matter beneath the video player on YouTube. Do you bypass the Preakness or do you run in the Preakness and then you end up bypassing the Travers to be ready and fresh for the Kentucky Derby? Do you bypass the Preakness? And run in a race like the Haskell in July, and then run in the Travers leading into the Derby. But then the idea of if you run in the Travers, and let's say the Derby is in September, realistically, you can't run in both of those. I mean, the, the likelihood of that being a possibility, the Travers is the second to last weekend of the Saratoga meeting at a mile and a quarter. And if, let's say, it is the first Saturday in September for the Kentucky Derby, you're going to run two mile and a quarter races over the course of two weeks. And then you're going to have, what, seven weeks before the Breeders' Cup Classic? I mean, it, it's certainly a, a monkey wrench that connections are going to need to factor in when plotting out campaigns for these top-level three-year-olds. And the last piece I'll touch on with this is how do these early-season derby preps, derby preps for this year anyway, how do these ultimately shape things going forward? And what do these final preps look like? Is this are, are these races still going to be the end-all be-all as far as the points are concerned? Because, you know, theoretically, your final prep would be something like the Lexington at Keeneland. But the chances of that having a direct effect on the Kentucky Derby, which wouldn't be for another, what, four months? Would you still be using this point? standings, this point system as sort of your barometer of who gets in and who doesn't. And if that's the case, do you actually get more horses and connections that push to try to get in for these final round of preps? Again, knock on wood, hopefully we run them because the chances of these horses staying sound and fit and happy over the next four months to get to that, you know, if, if the derby is still the end all be all, which in most cases it will be, do you have more people trying to get on the list knowing that defections for, for the next four months are going to happen? It's one thing when we're talking about, okay, you're going to run in this race here at the, the beginning of March. We're only eight weeks away. 
you know what? Some of these other connections are going to say, maybe we'll, maybe we'll wait. Maybe we'll take our time with our horse and get them prepped for a summer campaign. But if all of a sudden the Derby, the main goal itself is pushed back another four months, do you get those connections that would have typically been content saying, we're going to take our time. We're going to wait. We're not going to throw them into one of these Derby preps because we want to just kind of bring them along on their own. Do you have them take a chance See if they can get some points, knowing that, you know what, even if we're not in the top 20, heck, if we're not in the top 25 or even 30, the likelihood of that group of 20 still being the group of 20 in September is so, so slim. So maybe all of a sudden there are some defections. And guess what? Maybe by that time, that horse that right now doesn't seem ready to go for a race like the Kentucky Derby the first Saturday in May Maybe by the first Saturday in September, that horse is a monster. So maybe you get connections that kind of push the envelope a little bit if this all ends up shaking out the way that it is. And I'll keep an eye on Twitter right now. But again, the the chatter is that you could be looking at a September date for the Kentucky Derby. And if that's the case, then you know we'll see what happens. But I think it's a fascinating thing. It's unfortunate that we are in this position. And obviously, it's unfortunate we're in this position because of the reason that we are. Um, but I, I'm curious what, what your thoughts are again on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt or beneath the YouTube player. Um, fascinating time. I mean, crazy times, crazy times to be alive, but, but fascinating, fascinating ramifications all around. Let me know what your thoughts are. Let's get some of the racing from this past weekend. We'll kick things off with the big derby prep. That being the rebel down at Oaklawn park, sloppy mess in front of no fans because of coronavirus, doesn't matter. Unfortunately, not more people in person anyway were able to see the show that Nadal put on. Uh, All of us got to see it, obviously, through the magic of the internet and things of that nature, technology. It's a wild thing. Nadal, though, you want to talk about a performance and a horse that coming into this race, you can understand he, he ran really, really hard. In that San Vicente in his most recent run. And, and that was, I had mentioned, I think that was actually the first podcast since I came back. Uh, the the idea that he and Ginobili, they threw it down. That was a hard, hard race between those two. And I was going to be curious to see how each of them exited that and wherever their next start was. Sounds like Ginobili, they're going to keep him going shorter, which I really, really like. I think he's going to be a really talented three-year-old this year sprinting. Nadal, you expected them to stretch him out and try to find out what we've got here. He goes out there and sets a wicked pace throughout, a a contested wicked pace early on with American Theorem, puts him away, and then continues on with his business and holds off a late, late run from Accession, who was a million to one coming from dead last. The the numbers aren't necessarily going to tell you the story with Nadal here from Saturday afternoon. Let's start with the fractions. 22.89, 23.11, 25.38. So that third quarter was definitely on the slower side, and he finishes in 33.59. 33.59 is is really nothing to write home about, but when you consider that racetrack, sloppy going, two turns for the first time for this horse. Timeform US had the interior fractions color-coded red, so this was not a slow pace by any stretch. And then when you take a look and see that he had the second fastest come-home time, only behind Accession, who again came from dead last, This is a pretty major league performance from Nadal. 96 buyer speed figure, 114 raw time form US rating, pace adjusted moves up to a 120. I mean, this was a really, really impressive effort from this horse. Now, I've I've heard from people whose opinions that I respect that 
pointing out that this has been sort of a path and a pattern for Baffert to send horses to the Rebel that aren't necessarily horses that have the ability to go longer as the distances stretch out and, and maybe the waters get a little bit deeper. I'm not arguing with that, but that doesn't change the fact that the run on Saturday was exceptional from Nadal. And if my mind serves me correctly, he has run some pretty big horses in the Rebel in the past that have gone on and been able to successfully stretch out and handle more ground. I believe American Pharaoh took the Rebel to Arkansas Derby to wherever else path. So, and I'm not comparing Nadal to Pharaoh, but it's not as though this would be a, a totally unheard of thing for this horse to be able to stretch out. Maybe he ultimately will be better going shorter, but you can't knock the performance that we saw on Saturday. That was arguably the best prep performance we've seen to date. May not have been the fastest on the final time, but I think when you factor in, and that's an important piece of handicapping, uh, the number, look, I am someone that firmly believes in the numbers. Whatever figures you, you want to use, I think they're all valuable. I prefer to have more than one so I can sort of compare and contrast. But there's more. there, there are ways that the figures are earned. And this if you just want to use the buyer as the number, you know, that 96 is is considerably better than the 96 would indicate if you were just someone that opened up the racing form one day and saw that number and said, wow, it's a good race. No, it's considerably better than what that number suggests. That's part of the piece that I enjoy with Time Form US. And having said that, I usually just, I prefer to see the raw number and, and allow myself to interpret whether I think it was actually upgraded or not. But if you're someone that really is sort of on the time crunch and you're just trying to find a bit of a hack to get through there and say, well, it, it was this number X, Y, or Z, Timeform US goes ahead and does that. They factor in the pace situation into their final rating, which again, in this instance, pace adjusted would have been a 120 for Nadal. So a big effort from him. Saw some folks chirping about Basin, saying that this was a good effort for him, him a, a good starting off point. Um, I won't. I won't argue that it's a good starting off point. Uh, he did get shuffled a little bit on the far turn when American Theorem started backing up, but I don't think it was anything outrageous. I don't think it was anything that really cost him too, too much. He finished kind of flat, in my opinion. Uh, I thought I thought everyone else, essentially, in this race outside of Nadal was just sort of up and down. I thought it was, eh, nothing, nothing wild. Um, he can certainly move forward because it was his first start since the hopeful you would imagine he needed this race to get a little bit tighter, but boy, he's going to need to move forward in a pretty significant way if he's going to be a major threat here as a three-year-old. Because again, I feel like week in and week out keeps kind of adding to the narrative. This is a really talented group right here. So we'll see what happens. I think Basin, if you still believe, I'm not going to try to talk you off of him. If you're someone that needs to be convinced of him, I'm not going to be the one to do that because I, I thought it was a, a fair effort. I don't think it was anything to write home about. Nadal's A+. Charlatan. Charlatan, you can make the case, was the star of the weekend. Um, he takes on winners for the first time. He stretches out to two turns for the first time. He gets out there. I thought there were fair fractions. I don't think it was a blistering pace. I don't think he was walking either. Uh, for a mile for a horse, clearly of this talent level, 46 and four is, is fair. 46 and four going a mile and a quarter is a different story. 46 and four at a mile, uncontested as well. It's a fair pace. It's nothing crazy. Um, but the way, the thing that was most impressive to me about Charlatan, I didn't think he looked fantastic on the turns. And I've, I've brought this up uh, a few different times in different instances. 
the concept of turn time, and it's a it's a Tom Brohammer, uh, Sartre methodology sort of concept and idea. And I, I recognize if you're truly looking at turn time, it's more about um, the velocity ratings than necessarily, you know, just using your eye. But I think you can use your eye. There's a reason that certain horses, it looks like they are moving faster on the turns than others and they can make up ground. It's because they are. They can handle the turns better than other horses can. I've used Bravazo in the past. And right now he's not a good example because he's just not in good form. But when he was at his best, he was not a, a horse that really seemed to move well on the turns. Once you got him onto the straights, that's when he really leveled off and ran again. I I don't I'm not gonna compare Charlatan to Bravazo in that sense, but it didn't he didn't put any any ground on the field. He didn't make up any ground or or put lengths on the field on the turn. It was sort of he maintained his position, which is which is fine. When he hit the top of the lane and Van Dyke cracked him with the stick a couple times, the response was immediate. I liked that he spurred it away, that he still had something left in the tank. Um, he didn't, let's say he didn't look like he was doing it as far as, um, you know, I've, I've brought up American Pharaoh in the past and he's, he's a, it's unfair to, to compare any horse to American Pharaoh, but Pharaoh always did it. And I always look for, for the ears you always need to look for body language and clues about how horses are traveling, how they're looking. Are they doing it comfortably or they're not doing it comfortably? When you see a horse out there with their ears pinned back and it really looks like they're trying, I mean, if you've got a half mile to go, you're probably in deep water. If you see a horse out there with a half mile to go and their ears are just doing doing this sort of thing, kind of like the satellite dish, you're, okay, maybe the horse is having some fun and, and there's still something left in the tank. With Pharaoh, his ears were always straight up. He looked like a rabbit all the time. Never looked like he took a deep breath. Uh, there'll be a filly I'll speak about in a moment in the Beholder Mile. She did something rather similar, but I think it might have been for a different reason. Charlatan never looked like he was in trouble at any point. It never really looked like he was trying that hard. But at the same time, from an optic standpoint, he never, he didn't look like he was doing it as easily as a horse like a pharaoh or even a justify or any of those. And, and the reason I'm bringing up those names is because people are kind of carrying this horse's name in that same light. I thought he was awesome, and he galloped out pretty well. I, I think he's a special talent. I really do. I mean, he earned a 106 buyer. I don't have a time form U.S. rating right now, but, I mean, I look at Charlatan, and I say, oh, baby. I mean, this horse legitimately could be a special talent, and it's a fascinating dynamic in the Baffert barn now between Charlatan, um, uh, Nadal, just spoke about him, uh, and, and Authentic, who I will speak about later on in the Q&A segment. I mean, you, you arguably have the three best three-year-olds in your barn, in one barn. They, I've seen other folks bring up, they share similar running styles. Um, you know, it would be fascinating to see when we actually get to that point, how they'll all kind of handle that. But Charlatan's a special talent. There's no two ways around it. Um, you don't go and do things the way that he's done them as easily as he's done them in your first two starts. If you wanted to play devil's advocate at Santa Anita going two turns, there's no place you'd rather be than on the lead. He was able to get out there. Like I said, the fractions were fair. Nothing, you know, land speed record wise. But boy, good horses. When you can see, when you can see the visual of them respond to the asking, that to me signals a horse that is is pretty special. And, and, and I saw that 
when Van Dyke cracked him with the stick and he leveled off and accelerated. That to me is the sign of, of a of a good horse that there was still something left. He was just out there kind of feeling feeling things out. He'll only continue to improve. He's he's an exciting prospect. The Beholder Mile. I liked CC going into this race because her return effort I thought was spectacular going shorter. Visually, I thought she looked really, really good. I think Michael McCarthy is still very, very underrated despite what he did with City of Light. I think he's a really talented trainer. Uh, CC earns a, one, a 100 buyer speed figure winning the Beholder Mile. I thought she would be even closer to the pace than she was, but kind of in hindsight and looking back on the tape, this to me was even more impressive than the running style that I had sort of drawn up and hoped for in the race because she came from about two lengths off of it, but she was wide every step of the way. Four or five path on the first turn, probably four or five path down the backside, a little bit narrower on the far turn as she moved up and loomed and really started to press hard not to like, or excuse me, hard not to love. And and she just really kind of put her in her back pocket when the time was was you know when it was go time. The the interesting thing for me was in going back to the body language and the ears, and I do I, I know some people will laugh about it and kind of roll their eyes, but I think I think looking part of watching replays is being able to decipher what you're seeing, not just the obvious. Oh, the horse won by three lengths, or the horse came from way out of it and was able to rally off of a hot pace. It's watching the horses, being able to, to look for little little things that maybe others are going to overlook and, and underestimate the value and the importance of. And with a horse like Cece, when she made the front, you, you noted that Victor Espinosa still was pushing on her for a little bit, and ultimately he was able to kind of wrap up on her because she had opened up enough. But I felt like when she hit the front, the ears went up, and to me, I think she idled a little bit when she got out there. Now, I know that sounds silly because I believe final margin of victory was was three. I think more of the final margin in this instance had to do with hard not to love feeling the effects of two turns of the pace that she set and CC kind of easing up on the gas. There are some horses that you really need to time the ride correctly with. And again, I'm not suggesting that that it's the end-all be-all for CeCe, whether she wins by a half length or she wins by three and she does idle a little bit. I just thought it was one of those instances where she made the front so early that it was like, eh, my job is done. And I wonder if someone else were in the race that was doing any kind of real running, which frankly no one really did other than hard not to love, you know, maybe that would have cost her or maybe that margin would have shrunk a little bit. I think it's something maybe you want to keep an eye on with a horse like this where does she need to be, does the button need to be pushed at the right time? And keep in mind, she's very lightly raced. I think this is only her fifth lifetime start, something like that. I, I think the, the sky's the limit for this horse. But I wonder if, if there are still some quirks that maybe they, the connections need to, to figure out with her. Uh, and this is just my opinion. I'd be curious, anybody else's thoughts? at Bernie or underscore Matt on Twitter or beneath the video player on YouTube. Um, I think CC could be a legitimate Breeders' Cup distaff, not just contender, but one of the one of the favorites if she continues on this trajectory. I'd be fascinated to see what the plans are for her going forward. Um, if, if Look, if we have to, if everyone has to deal with some sort of a little bit of a hiatus, that'll throw a monkey wrench into things. But um, I think the, the talent for CC, I'm really high on her. I think she's quite good. And again, I think Michael McCarthy does a great job. Uh, hard not to love. I don't think she really loses anything in defeat here. I think she's best going one turn. 
whether it's a one-turn mile, whether it's seven-eighths of a mile, even six might be a hair sharp for her, but I think she could do it if they really needed to. Good news is for the Phillies and Mares, the big races as far as sprints are concerned are at seven-eighths. That's her bread and butter. I, I She loses nothing in defeat here. She had a legitimate pace. Turn her back to one turn. I think she's good to go. More speed. The Azari. Serengeti Empress bottoms out the field. 101 buyer, 119 time form US rating. Geared down late. Perhaps the complexion of the race changes a little bit when Aw Emma, who is likely to be, albeit an overmatched foe, is likely to be the pace that would push Serengeti Empress early on when she dumps the rider out of the gate. Serengeti Empress is able to get out there. Now, having said that, she went fast throughout, and I thought it was a good ride from Talamo. Use your, I mean, I say it week in and week out. Use your best asset. Your best asset is speed. I think it's pretty clear at this point that Serengeti Empress is a need-the-lead type. So if that's the case, even if it means dueling yourself into submission, I'd rather you get out there and and go and have it not work out, but you use your best asset as opposed to trying to get cute, you know, rate the horse, try to bring the rest of the field into the run. Just go. Just go because you know what? If it doesn't work, so be it. But if it does, you're going to be able to bottom a field out and it's going to make it really difficult for anybody else to try to run you down. I'd rather you do that, do what Talamo did and say, whether it works or not, we're using our speed to our biggest advantage. I mean, that, that's that's what a horse like Serengeti Empress is blessed with. Wicked early speed going two turns. Um, and if there's no other speed in the race, She's dangerous in any race that she runs in. If there is other speed, it's going to make life a little bit more difficult for her. Perhaps you want to give Street Band the benefit of the doubt for this race. Didn't love that she was a bit late with the lead change, but Street Band is a horse that likes to make one run. And by default in this race on Saturday, she was forced to take up the chase. I don't think that's necessarily her preferred running style. She didn't run well. Don't get me wrong. I'm not building an excuse. None of the other girls ran all that well. You can question, did they handle the racetrack, whatever it was. But Street Band's best game is when you take her back and you make that run, as opposed to being the one taking up the chase. Maybe that's a reason that you want to give her the benefit of the doubt. If you don't, I'm not going to blame you. Just something that I was throwing out there. Uh, The Hurricane Birdie down at Gulfstream Park. Sally's Curlin, I really liked her going into the race. She gets the job done at 10 to 1. 93 buyer, 115 time form US rating, red fractions throughout. She had the run of the race. They threw it down early on. She was able to loop up. A little bit of a quirk when she swapped leads at the top of the lane, but I think that was brought on because of a little bit of contact from a filly down on her inside. She quickly righted the ship. Edgar just points her in the right direction. She goes and wins for fun. I really like this horse. I think she's really talented, and I think too many people will look at this and say, oh, it's an aberration. She had the run of the race. The pace melted down. Yes, all of that is accurate. But you go through the PPs, and I speak about the difference between a one-turn horse and a two-turn horse. You know, I brought up the idea that I think Midnight Bisu is exceptional at one turn. She is really, really good going two turns. I've brought up in the past, I feel like Frosted would have proven to be an exceptional one-turn horse. I don't think that Met Mile was a one-off. He was a really good two-turn horse. I think he was exceptional at one turn. Sally's Curlin, if you can pull up the PPs, and you have access to Saturday's past performances go through her lifetime her one turn races and i include ellis park because ellis park's one mile race is kind of like turn and a half ish her one turn races are much much better than her two turn races 
To me, she is a one-turn horse through and through. I think she's still very interesting in races that maybe down the line, people will discredit her and look at and say, yeah, she's not that good. I just need the connections to put her in the right spots. Don't stretch her out to two turns. I don't think she's a two-turn horse. Point for races like the Madison. Uh, Maybe that's a little bit quick now. Point for races like the Humana Distaff. Uh, you know, any of these races going forward, these these one-turn, and if you want to try to stretch her out to a one-turn mile and an eighth, maybe a race like the Beldame does work, um, or a race like the, you know, the Ogden Phipps, but to me, one turn, keep her at that. I think she's sneaky for a race like the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare Sprint. I know I'm going way down the line, but if you're looking for a race that typically has pace, for a horse that excels going one turn, seven-eighths isn't going to be an issue for her. Horse like Sally's curling. I'm, I'm going to tell you something, and I, you may, maybe you do or don't believe me. Um, I had a trip on her, a note, that had she run in the Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare Sprint, I would have picked her. She didn't go there. They ran her two turns. It didn't work out. She was laid up. She came back, and she runs in this race. That's how highly I think of her. I think she's a really talented one-turn horse. Um, if you're looking for anyone else to take out of that race, pause for the cause. The horse that ran third, she was up there pushing the pace throughout. It was her first start off the bench. She's a New York bred. Um, that's a giant race for her to push the pace the way that she did and not get totally embarrassed. I mean, she was in this thing with about an eighth of a mile to go. She just felt the effects of that hot pace early on. They went 22 flat, 44 and a piece. That was a big effort. She's one that I've already put in my horse watch. Because wherever she comes back, if she comes back in a New York bread race, you're just inherently going to lose some value. Uh, but I, she's one that I wouldn't be afraid to throw back into a graded stake and say, let's take a shot if the pace dynamics are a little bit different. We've got a horse that we know she's going to have the fitness from that most recent run and maybe with a little bit of a, a more advantageous setup early on, we can do some big things. Last comment on the Hurricane Birdie. I, he's probably not going to hear this. If Paco Lopez gets this, and I mean this in the most positive way possible, just go. He rode pause for the cause. And it, it, Paco always does this. He's always looking under his shoulder, looking, looking for, just go, bud, go. Because you still need to get to the wire first, whether they're running behind you or not. Just ride. I always I always bring up sort of the, the example. I, grew, I played baseball my entire life. I coached for a little bit. When you run to first base, run through the base. Don't worry about what the hell's happening out here. Don't worry if the shortstop boots it. Don't worry if the third baseman made some wicked, you know, backhanded play and he's he's, you know, trying to make a a wild throw as he's going into foul territory. Straight look at the bag and run through it. And then obviously if you're just running through the bag, peel out into foul territory because if you turn in, if you turn in, you're into the field of play, you're live. Peel out into foul territory. The idea is don't worry about what's happening there. Worry about the only thing you can control, and that's you and your mount. Ride, brother. Ride. We know that you're good. We know that you're talented. But but stop. For the love of God, stop looking under your shoulder. Just go. Go. That's all I ask. Uh, the last race that I guess I'm going to talk about, but I don't have anything to really say. Jeff Ruby Stakes field pass wins with a 90 buyer 105 time form U.S. rating. Entertaining race, not a lot of passing. Top four or five horses essentially were that way throughout the run. It was a formful race. They, I think they were all top four or five choices. I don't know what this race really means going forward. Um, 
you know, given the synthetic surface, I don't think it has any ramifications on any of the big three-year-old races, but in time will tell. Um, for now, yeah, I, I don't have much to add. Um, as always, if there was another horse this weekend that caught your eye, if there's another race, another horse in any of these races that you're curious about an opinion, you want me to comment on, you know the drill. Beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Now, pick history and Q&A. Let's wrap up episode six with the updated pick history along with this week's Q&A. As far as the pick history is concerned, I, I spoke about it last week. Off to a bit of a slow start. The percentages are a little bit low. Obviously, the ROI was low. Small sample size. Things are going to change. I expect the numbers to go up. This weekend helped kind of, you know, right the ship a little bit. Uh, the sample size now is 33 selections. Uh, from a win standpoint, 21% winners with a 220 ROI. Uh, overall, you'd be up 10%. Uh, $66 wagered, $72.40 have been returned. So into the black, which is good. The win percentage is still a little light. I expect that to be in that sort of, as I said, somewhere in the 22, 23 to 25, 26 on a, on a good run kind of range. So it's not far off, but it's still a little on the light side. Uh, the ROI, obviously, it's going to fluctuate more when the sample size is smaller. As the sample size continues to grow, it's uh, going to certainly need to be more consistent in order to keep it close to the, the break-even sort of threshold of $2. So um, obviously it's always good when you're in the positive, but still a long way to go. Still a relatively small sample size, but nice to finally get back up over the other side. As far as the win place show is concerned, uh, 48%, which is, that is, I know for a fact that's low. That should be um, based on my history in the past. That should end up being around 55, 56% when it's all said and done. So still some room to go there. 174 ROI, that would be down 13% overall, uh, $198 wagered, $172.30 returned. That's one of those things where, for me, the win play show becomes more valuable when I can catch some of the bigger numbers, when I can catch a horse that I like at you know 15 to 1 or whatever it may be, and they run second, and I can get the place and show money. So sure, it hurts my my bottom line on the win, but I'm only going to lose $2 at a time with that as opposed to the win play show when I miss the board entirely with one of, with any horse, let alone a big price, I'm dropping six bucks at a time. That's going to add up a lot quicker than the $2 at a time is going to. And that's why getting some of those prices to hit the board, for me anyway, that'll help at least alleviate. So maybe I don't have those horses winning all the time. When they do, it's a bonus. But when they at least hit the board and preferably run second, that'll at least, you know, save me for two runs as far as the win play show is concerned. So 220 ROI on 21% for the win bets right now, uh, 48% 174 ROI for the win play show. Keep you posted and hopefully we have racing that we can talk about soon to continue to add to that, but looks a little dubious. As far as the Q&A is concerned from Alex Kibrick on YouTube. Alex, thank you for watching and listening. Can you talk about how you'll handicap a horse like Authentic who is by into mischief as the distances get longer? I feel like you can't trust in Into Mischief. Let me read that again. I feel like you can't trust Into Mischiefs to win doing 10 furlongs or going 10 furlongs, and I'll probably end up fading him completely in the Derby. Historically, Audible and Golden Sense are the ones that come to mind for me backing up that argument. I apologize for stumbling all over that question. That was me typing it while not looking at what I'm writing. So autocorrect probably took over at some point in there. Uh, again, thank you for the question. To sort of go back to it, 
The Into Mischief's going longer. Authentic is one of them. Authentic on the bottom. There's not a ton of distance pedigree as well. Um, so how do I handle them going going longer? Obviously, now the schedule could be a little bit in flux, but I, I went back and watched the San Felipe. He looked very comfortable going out there and winning at a mile and a 16th. He looked very, very nice on the gallop out. I still believe when I look at a horse and the way that they move and the pedigree and things of that nature, I prefer a horse like Honor AP out of that race. I think added ground will only be to his benefit. And as you alluded to, Alex, you go through and look at some of the best horses that a stallion like Into Mischief has had. For the most part, they're middle distance types. They're milers, mile and a 16th, maybe a mile and an eighth, but I mean, that's pushing it. And obviously, seven eighths of a mile and, and in that ballpark. When I looked, when I look at him run, he looks very athletic. He looks like the kind of horse he's one. I was just speaking about the ears situation. He had his ears up playing on the far turn. Santanita is always such a difficult read for me with any of these horses because speed always does so well, but especially going two turns. And authentic has been out there all the time, going two turns on the lead. So does. The distance may get mitigated a little bit at a track like Santa Anita because it just the natural profile is going to continue to sort of carry them along. When I look at him and I see him on the track, I wonder, I'm like, well, maybe he's going to end up being sort of, you know, is, is he more of the mile and an eighth type as opposed to the charlatan? And then you see someone like, like a Nadal, and I, I feel like he could be anything. I feel like he could go longer. Maybe he is still best going shorter. His pedigree would suggest distance isn't going to be an issue. This horse is the one with the pedigree that I look at and I go, mm, I don't know how, how confident I would be going longer. And I guess the the most simplistic way for me to answer, answer the question, and I'm curious what all the other viewers and listeners have to say, it all comes down to price. So thus far, he's looked good. Doesn't look like the distance has been a problem for him at any point. He continues on very, very nicely. Would I want to settle for him as the second choice or the favorite or the third choice going 10 furlongs for the first time against, let's say, theoretically other horses that maybe their pedigree suggests that they're going to improve as the distances get longer, whatever the case may be? I don't know that I'd want to settle for that. So I know it's not a great sort of explanation, but that's where I stand with this horse. I I think he's talented. I don't think the distance is a major issue right now. I just don't know that I'd need to find out at a short price that 10 furlongs isn't his bread and butter. I hope that is a substantial and suitable answer for you, Alex. Thank you again for listening and watching. And I'm going to need to nip this thing because my battery's about to die. So for those of you that have listened or watched, thank you for doing so. Wherever you take this thing in, please rate, review, and subscribe. Follow me on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Questions, comments, concerns beneath the video player on YouTube or directly to me on Twitter. Please stay safe in this time of uncertainty and unknown. Do your due diligence, wash your hands, stay on top of things, whatever the the higher powers are telling us to do to be safe, please do them. This coronavirus is no joke. Uh, I'll be back on Monday talking about something as far as racing is concerned. Um, Stay safe. Best of luck. There's not a lot going on this week, but I will say it. Best of luck, however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. This has been episode six of the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network.